So we're continuing in Old Testament Survey 1, class number 2. We started this last week. This week we'll look at Fall, Flood, and Tower. So remember last week we looked at Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And in those chapters, what did we see? We saw God's perfect and pristine creation. We saw the Lord God exercising complete sovereignty and care over a people living in perfect fellowship with God and each other. Uh, These people were stewards of the earth as kings and priests and enjoyed rest and peace as they displayed God's glory. Somebody open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 for me and read that. God saw that all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. All right, so uh, we see that the refrain after the creation, when God surveyed His kingdom, when He looked at it, particularly at those humans who He created in His image, He called it what? Very good. good. That's right. Now turn over to Genesis chapter 6, if you will. And look at verse 5. Somebody can read verse 5, and somebody else can read verse 11 through 12. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. All right. Somebody read verse 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. Whoa! Right? What happened? Uh, what happened to create such a radical reversal of what was good and then to transform that from what is good, true, and beautiful to such wickedness, evil, corruption, and violence? And really, maybe the greater questions could be, what's God going to do about it? And what are we to do about it? Well, this is uh, the lesson that uh, we're going to get a lot of answers to those questions tonight, right? But first, what we must look at is the context. And I want you to think about this. When you're reading Scriptures, remember what we're doing is creating tools for you to know how to read your Scriptures. When we talk about context, what we really mean is, is, um, is three particular ways. The first way is what we call the historical context, okay? I want you to think about this, and I want you to use this in your Scripture reading. What is the historical context? Well, the historical context um, gives us the audience, right? When was this book written? Who was it written to? Who wrote it? When did they write it? What purpose did it serve, right? What were the people going through as they heard it? So we know in Genesis, the historical context would be who? Who do we believe wrote Genesis? Moses, right? And we, we, we likely think that uh, during the time he was a prophet to Israel, which we know took place for many years, that likely God gave him this book during Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Not that, but just the entirety of the law. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Because each week, what I want to do is I'll briefly explain the context and basically again who the author is historical context why he wrote the book historical context and what's going on around him in space and uh and time so second the second context we need to be thinking of is what we call and probably what we're most familiar of when we think of context is the textual or literary context what do you think i mean by textual or literary context 
you had to guess, there's no wrong answers. I mean, there are, but you're okay. <laughs> the written history of it? Well, in the, in the text itself really is what we're looking at. So when we look at the textual context, what we're looking at is things like genre. What kind of book is this, right? So we know this is a book of the law, but it's historical narrative law, right? Um, so it's a book that tells us a story that's happening in history, and yet it's still law. We also are looking at what's come before this particular text, that's literary context or textual context, and what's come after this. So we want to not be able to take one story out of Scripture and say this is what it means apart from what's happened before and what's happened after. So the literary or textual context for us is, as I just mentioned, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, right? Describing God's perfect creation as it was originally intended. And now as we turn to Genesis 3, we'll see how and why the radical change took place uh, that has plunged us into the world we now know, a world of death, disease, broken relationships, a world of sin. Finally, each week, I'm going to, you hear me probably say this, and a lot of this tonight you've probably heard me say um, on Sunday morning, but I've probably done a very poor job of explaining it. Uh, when we talk about context, each week I'm going to also point you to the redemptive historical context. That's a biggie, redemptive historical context. What I mean by that, when I say redemptive historical context, it's really biblical theology what we've talked about, right? The idea that the Bible itself is telling one story, right? Yes, it's made up of many books, sure, with many stories, but the whole of those many books and many stories are tied together to one unified whole. The one story that is holding the Bible together is God's work in history to redeem, to rescue, to save a people by His grace and for His glory. So since it's God's work of redemption in the course of history, we've come up with this very clever name of redemptive history, right? Redemptive historical context. Basically, it means the unified story in the Bible of the true history of how God saved His people. And so each week, before we dive into any book of the Bible, we need to know where we're at on that storyline. What has God been up to? What has God accomplished in His redemptive historical plan so far up to the point that we are studying in the Bible? And it will become clearer what we mean by this as we continue to go along. And so obviously, when we think about the redemptive historical context of Genesis, we're at the very beginning of history, right? Beginning history itself here in the opening chapters of Genesis. But then... What will happen is as we turn to Genesis 3, we will see the beginning of God's work of redemption in the course of history. The beginning of redemptive history, right? No sooner do our first parents plunge us into sin and ruin does God have a plan and begins that effective plan to save many women, men, and children out of that sin and ruin. So each week we'll be keeping tabs on how far along we are, uh, or God is, in His plan and what it means for us in our place in redemptive history. Any questions about the context or those three things we need to look for in context? Remember, every one of these helps you read your Bible so much better. In fact, 
as we're reading through Samuel, think about these three understandings of context. Where is Israel in the course of history? Right? What's the literary and, and, and textual context? In other words, what's just come before? And then where are we in the redemptive story of history? Think about this. So that's enough of that for now. Uh, let's move on to the theme. Let's get into our aim for this particular lesson of Genesis 3 through 11. Fall, flood, and Lord willing, if we have time, tower. A thematic statement to summarize these chapters might sound like this. And again, I did the same thing last week. Please forgive me. A summary statement should be um, concise and clear. These aren't necessarily that, but this is just, there's so much here. So, so bear with me as this is the summary statement of these chapters. Mankind's first parents decided to set them up as equals to God and have disobeyed Him. In doing so, they have incurred the just wrath of God and have been expelled from that pristine, created order where they will no longer enjoy that perfect fellowship with Him, nor each other, nor rest in peace on earth. That's a run-on sentence, I get it. However, this is not the complete wrath they deserve. For God has already established a way by which the curse of sin will be overturned and the universe recreated to its original state. Again, I know that's a lot. Again, usually throughout this course, the thematic summaries will be more concise, but that's just how chock full of doctrine these uh, these chapters are. So now, let's get to the text. What you have before you is an outline with some pivotal text there. And I want to draw your attention, uh, not so much to just the outline itself, but really to let you know that, that these, these breaks and divisions, when you see these, they're, they're not random, right? They're not just arbitrary based on my opinion. Uh, they're really determined by the text. And so what you'll notice is each uh, section here begins with a Hebrew word that's translated in the English towards uh, genealogy or generations or account or family history or ancestral narrative. And this is a repetition uh, that shows a natural break in the text. So, for instance, when you see 2 and you see chapter 5, verse 1 would be your first break, look at what it says at chapter 5, verse 1. It says, this is the book of the genealogy of Adam. Right? So look at that next text now in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. What does it say? This is the genealogy of Noah. Right? Genesis chapter 10, verse 1, at the very beginning, what do you think it's going to say? Now, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then Genesis chapter 11, starting at verse 10, this is the genealogy of Shem. You see that very clearly? Listen, these aren't just sections that we say, well, I think this is a good amount of chunk to put. These are broken down very clearly in the Scriptures. And so that's our outline, and those are pivotal texts we want to try our best to study. And so now let's focus in on a couple of theme texts. Turn to chapter 2, and if you have the opportunity, somebody can go ahead and read verses 15 through 17. You can slip your hand up too. Go ahead, John. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man... You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Okay, so part of man's responsibility as kings, 
Only under God's greater kingship, remember they had dominion over the earth, part of their responsibility was to obey God. Here, what do we read? We read that they're told to work and not to eat of a particular tree in the garden. Which tree? The tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And if they eat of that tree, what will happen? They will what? Surely die, right? Don't call me Shirley. Just kidding. Um, so, uh, that was an airplane reference, if anybody... Yeah. Thank you. All right, good. One person got it. All right, now, hear me. This tree, when we think about this, it's really important we, we understand that this way. This tree's not a magical tree, okay? And what I mean by that is, is that once they eat of the magical fruit, that suddenly now they would know what is good and what is evil, whereas before they were just kind of morally unaware, living in a state of blissful ignorance. Nor are we really to think of this tree as some kind of cruelties placed there by God as a way of tempting Adam and Eve. I want you to understand this. This tree is a symbol. It was placed right there in full sight to remind Adam and Eve that although they are given great privilege and many freedoms, right? Such freedom that they could literally eat of what? Any other tree, right? Every tree as much as their little hearts desire. The reminder and the symbol is here that they are not God. Okay? They are they're not the high king. They are still creatures and not creators. They're not the final authority in the universe. They don't determine what is good and what is evil. They are still under the authority of God Almighty. This is actually, by the way, what it means to know good and evil. It doesn't mean simply to be informed about good and evil, but to take prerogative to determine what is good and evil. It's taking upon oneself the right to become judge and to have the final say on what is good and what is evil. Appropriately then, this is, is this symbol of man's creatureliness called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. With this tree, God is saying to Adam and Eve, I alone have the right to determine what is good and what is evil. I alone have the right to determine what is right and what is wrong in my universe. Remember that, my children, or there will be dire consequences. Any questions about that particular text in Genesis 2? Alright, our next theme text is going to be Genesis chapter 3. Let's look at this little by little here. In fact, somebody can start us off by reading the first five verses if you can, of Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Liar! Right? Not you, Richard. Uh, but uh, <laughs> The serpent, of course, is who? We know? Satan. Satan, right? We see that in Revelation 12, 9, by the way. If you want to write that reference down, he's referred to as the serpent there. And who is Satan? He's a created angel in rebellion against God. See, here, here's what you need to see. The serpent would have us think, I am like God. I know what's good and evil. I know what's worthy and what's unworthy. 
I know what's a valuable way to spend my time and what's not. I know who is worth loving and who is not. I know what's worth worshiping and what's not. I know what's weighty and of great consequence and what's not. That's what he would have us think. It's arrogant, it's idolatrous, and it's insane. Notice, by the way, Eve's confusion about what God has said. In fact, our Sunday school class, Brock is actually going through Genesis right now, and he did such a fabulous job of breaking down how she misquotes Scripture. She misquotes what God has said. And remember, who was to be her spiritual leader? So there's obviously a break here in communication from what God has said to Adam and what Adam has therefore said to Eve. And so listen, the serpent's ability to create confusion about what God has said will be Eve's downfall. Just to create confusion. Ignorance of, lack of clarity about, and disbelief in God's word is always a dangerous (coughs) recipe. But go ahead and look at verse 6 with me, if you will. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Adam and Eve both fell for it. The idea of becoming like God lodged in their hearts, and by eating the fruit of the tree, they tried to supplant God and take their own seat at the head of the universe. This is real treachery. In fact, it's mutiny. (laughs) However, it didn't work. In fact, the very next verse shows us that. Somebody read verses 7 and 8 for me. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves morning covers. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife themselves hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Does that sound like how gods behave? No, not whatsoever. It sounds like people ashamed of what they've done, hasn't it? It's as though they immediately realize their great folly and evil. Suddenly, the perfect fellowship, the love, the openness and trust, it's gone. They now hide from each other in verse 7, and they hide from God in verse 8. The death that was promised as a consequence in Genesis 2.17 has begun. So now let's go back to our question we're asking right here, from how we got to very good and how we got to only evil continually. What in the world is God going to do about this sin? What is He going to do to deal with this treasonous rebels? All are culpable here, right? The serpent is guilty. Adam is guilty. Eve is guilty. And so God will address each of them in turn. We're going to look at them a little little out of order, though. In fact, we're going to begin with Eve in verse 16. Look what it says to Eve in verse 16. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So for Eve, no longer will childbearing be respectful and peaceful, but painful, or so I hear. Women's relationship with her husband will have difficulties and strife, and yet notice that there's grace here. Where do we see the grace here given to Eve? See, you're not going to see this as grace, but you should. Eve's not destroyed on the spot. That's the grace. 
It, it really is. The mayor's life and motherhood will not be ideal, but it still will be. She still gets to be a mother. She still gets to be a wife. And so for Adam, let's go ahead and look at his punishment in verses 17 and 19. Somebody read that for me. All right, y'all got to pick it up, all right? Or we're going to be here all night. And to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face uh, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. So Adam's work will no longer also be restful or peaceful. No longer will Adam be able to control the environment. Instead, what is his work going to be? It's going to be hard, pain, right? And by the sweat of his face, the earth will fight against him and make life difficult. Yet again, notice the grace. Adam and Eve still get to live on planet earth. They're not blotted out entirely. Sure, the earth will be full of tornadoes, droughts, floods, and their work will be hard, but they're still here. In verses 23 and 24, it tells us that they're driven out of the presence of God, but physical life still continues. However, it will not continue forever. At the end of verse 19, we read that mankind will return to the dust from which he is taken. It's almost as though in dying, the creation of man is reversed, isn't it? Thus he dies. He dies in a sense when he is alienated from God by his sin and in the full meaning of the world when his soul is ripped from his body and his body goes back to the ground. So there is a very tragic end to man and to the creation. Friends, it all ends someday in death. Everything dies. That's a fact. But praise God, that's not the end of the story. It's the beginning of redemptive history. Look back now at verses 14 and 15. There we read God's words to the serpent, the devil. Look at what he says. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There we see the ultimate solution to our plight. For in verse 15 is the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of God's plan of redemption. Think about these verses. God says He is putting enmity. Can anybody tell me what enmity is? You want to guess what enmity is? Do you know? Strife. Yeah, it's strife. Hostility. Hostility to the point of killing each other. Anger. Right, that, that's really what it is. Anger, strife, hostility to the point where you commit the death of someone else. And it's between certain persons. So listen, there are three levels of enmity here, right? Uh, we see this clearly. The first level of enmity, I knew I was going to do this. Oh, there it is. The first level of enmity we see, three levels. The first is between the devil versus the woman, okay? <laughs> Three levels of enmity, and the first is between the devil and the woman. What does that mean? Well, 
it means that Satan and the human race are enemies. Now, that might not sound like such a great plan of redemption to us if the first thing God does is to make us enemies to Satan. But what's the alternative to that? The alternative would be to be friends with Satan and therefore be permanent enemies of God. So what God is saying here is that humanity still belongs to Him. Satan cannot steal away his image-bearing creatures. He can deceive, he can lead astray, but he cannot own. Satan will not rule them or determine their final destination. They still belong to God. So enmity with God's enemy is still a good thing. The second level of enmity we see is going to be between devil's offspring... Versus woman's seed. Devil's offspring versus the woman's seed. That's the second level of enmity that we'll see here. Okay, does that mean that children and snakes will always hate each other? No, it's, it's actually a pronouncement that humanity will forever be divided into two camps. One is called the seed of the woman. The other is called the offspring or seed of the serpent. While, of course, uh, all of us will physically be descendants of the woman Eve, since she's the first mother of everyone, nonetheless, some of those physical offspring of Eve will be spiritually the seed of the serpent. That means they will, like Satan, not obey God, but will throughout their lives fall into the deceits of the devil, just as Adam and Eve did this one time. Jesus actually teaches this kind of spiritual fatherhood in John chapter 8, verse 44, when he confronts some of his contemporaries by saying this. He says, You are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. As John typically does in his epistles, he just kind of shortens what he says in the Gospels in 1 John 3 8, where he says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. That's in layman's terms for you. So, those who, as a lifestyle, posture or position themselves against God and live intentionally sin filled lives are the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman, then, from verse 15, are the rest of humanity. They are those through who faith and repentance attempt at least as much as one can in our world that has fallen to follow and obey God. This verse says that there are two groups of people and they are irreconcilable. There are those who hate God and they will make war against those who seek to obey Him. Again, just as Jesus put it in John 15 where He said, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Or again, in layman's terms, in 1 John 3.13, we're told, Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. Now the third level of enmity is the most crucial. There's a level of enmity that's coming up, and it's going to be the ultimate showdown. It is going to be uh, the devil's head versus the seed's and that's a singular seeds. Heal. Devil's head 
versus the seed's heel. That's the third level of enmity we see. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Suddenly, God's not talking about a group of people anymore, isn't He? He's not talking about a line of descendants. Instead, He's speaking about one descendant who will come and deliver the final blow to the devil, who will end the enmity. Do you see that there? He's using singular pronouns, he and him. And so out of the larger group of faithful, God-obeying people is going to rise one man who will crush the head of Satan and end the enmity, thereby ridding the creation of this deceiver and this entire mess we find ourselves living in. Praise God. Hallelujah. However, this seed will not come out of the battle completely unscathed, will he? His heel will be struck. That's not a fatal wound like the one to the head, but it's still a real wound nonetheless. So who is this one seed who will be wounded in his victorious battle over the evil of the universe? And here's your chance for the Sunday school answer. Who is it? Jesus. Jesus, right. The Lord Jesus Christ. See, a moment ago I read to you from 1 John 3, 8, but I didn't read the entire verse. The entire verse says this, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. The victory over the devil and his works was accomplished on the cross. You see that clearly in the text. I think you have these scriptures in your notes. John 12, 31-33, Colossians 2, and Hebrews 2. You got those? Yeah. Alright, take some time to meditate on those. They are true. Remember, friends, that the problem in the universe is sin, which Adam and Eve, our parents, opened the door to. The result of that sin is death. So for the universe to begin to set right, again, sin and death has must be eradicated. And by His death on the cross, Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God for the sins of His people and forever purchased forgiveness for them. Thus, the legal demands of God's justice are met and His people are given eternal life. Now, Christ's people await a second coming when He'll destroy the works of the devil completely and renew the creation to its original state. Remember, in the first coming of Christ, He overcame sin for us. In His second coming, He'll give us the final victory over death. Any questions about the narrative there in Genesis chapter 3? Or comments? You have until I finish the sip of water. All right, let's keep moving to Genesis 4. Because what this is, is after Genesis 3, and the reason why we spent so much time there is because the rest of the Bible is just an outworking of Genesis 3.15. It's that very verse, the three levels of enmity we just put up on the board, all of that now being played out in history. Satan is always trying to destroy God's image bearer. More specifically, he's using his own spiritual seed to corrupt or destroy the godly descendants of Eve, with the goal of preventing the one seed, the champion, the Messiah, from coming into the world and crushing him. In the very next chapter, what do we see? Cain killing Abel. So we look at Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, and we read, Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So has the serpent won? Has the godly line ended? Well, no, but only because in verses 25 and 26, 
Adam and Eve have another son to carry forward the line that will someday birth the Savior. Uh, but, but as the story through the Bible continues, we're again and again brought to wonder this question. Will Satan win at snuffing out the line? Or will the promises of God be fulfilled? And, and let's be honest, oftentimes when we read the scriptures, it looks bleak for the people of God, doesn't it? As though surely Satan has finally won the decisive battle. But just as we read at the end of Genesis 4, God will always provide a way. And listen, sometimes the way is quite narrow. But he always provides a way for his people. Consider the flood. Was Satan able to corrupt humanity so badly that God would destroy them all? No. One family delivered by grace. Will the promise of Abraham through whom the seed will come fall to the ground because he and his wife, or specifically his wife, is barren? No. God will miraculously provide a son. Will the descendants of Abraham be snuffed out by a famine? No. God will send a savior of sorts ahead of them to Egypt and their brother Joseph to gather food to stay off the famine. Will the Pharaoh and his seed of the serpent army extinguish the children of Abraham when they get too numerous in Egypt? No. God rescues them through Moses. Next, the one seed is promised to come through David's line. And we already looked at some of the, David, the troubles that David has faced. He's always in danger, be it from Goliath or Saul or Babylonian captivity later on. Nonetheless, God always miraculously preserves the line. And then finally, once the seed is born, what happens right after Jesus is born? What does Satan try to do? Yeah, through King Herod, right? Tries to tempt him. Immediately after his baptism in the wilderness. Finally, it looks as though the devil has won when Jesus is there dying on the cross. But therein is actually Christ's victory, not his defeat. For there he defeated sin. He defeated death when he rose three days later. And now he reigns until his final and complete victory over Satan when he returns. Until then, Satan is a defeated enemy. Now he's still raging. But until Christ returns to crush his head once and for all, which he's promised to do, you can read about that again in Revelation 12. So again, as we come across these things, we'll address these more in depth as we go. But we need to, again, look at this redemptive historically, how this folds out. So chapter 5, as we continue through Genesis, we really see the outworking again of this enmity between the godly and the ungodly lines. Chapter 5 lists out the godly line as it descends from Adam through Seth. And I, I know we're tempted to read that and say, well, that's just a bunch, a list of names. But it's got some incredible significance. Notice one thing. At the end of verse 5, 8, 11, 14, 17, 20, 27, and 31, they all end with this refrain. And he died. That refrain is like a constant drumbeat. Boom, 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 boom. Over and over again to pound into us the dreadful certainty of what awaits sinners in this world, even those who are the seed of the woman and mean to be obedient to God. For godly though they might be to some extent, they are still sinners. And it comes to really, in chapter 6, what we see is more of mankind's further and further descent into depravity and evil. In chapter 3, rebellion against God took on the form of trespassing and stealing. Chapter 4 took on the form of murdering. And man continues more and more to just be very much rotten, divine image bearers. That's what they continue to do. Till we read in chapter 6, the indictment I read to you at the beginning of class. The wickedness and treachery 
and rebellion and dishonoring or not glorifying of God has become so great that His patience has run out. You notice there in verse 7 of chapter 6, it says, So the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. Does that ring a bell, the way he talks about that? That the judgment coming on will take really a form of reversing what? Creation. The acts of creation. The animals and mankind in particular will no longer fill the earth, but will all be destroyed. And how will this destruction come? Of course, there's a story of this flood. And really, we've got to move on here, but there's a constant reminder of this picture of recreation or undoing of creation. Remember the idea of creation. There was water above and water below. And what we see in God's judgment in the flood is water bursting up from above and falling down from below. Judgment taking on the form of uncreation and then grace taking on the form of recreation. Really, knowing that we know the story of the flood, I want to introduce to you another term. And it's a term... i got to go. need more room. It's a term I also use... Um, quite a bit on Sunday morning without really explaining it, um, but it's a very important term. It's typology, right, or type, or typological, or so so on and so forth. What is typology? What do we mean by typology? Typology is this. God, in His providence and sovereignty, has done things in the Old Testament, whether it be caused events or created institution, used people to foreshadow something greater in the future, usually things about His Son, Jesus Christ. In other words... All of the Old Testament has some sort of organic relationship to Jesus. Okay? God has carried out His plan of redemption forward in the Old Testament in such a way to prefigure, prefigure excuse me, and foreshadow Jesus at every turn. Talked to you a little bit about this last week when I said the Old Testament sets the context such as Christ could come into the world and the things He'd do and say would have been all the more clearly understood in a profound way against this backdrop of the Old Testament. But again, the phrase redemptive history like that, this idea will become clearer as we move forward. Suffice to say this, the flood narrative in Genesis, the uncreating and recreating is a picture of a future, greater, cataclysmic undoing and redoing of the universe. Not water this time, but by fire. And listen, at the end of time, Christ will come a second time and will overturn and recreate the universe through the purging effect of fire. The flood was a real, historical event whereby God demonstrated His wrath upon sin and grace and His recreation of the world. But friends... The next time will be a far more terrible judgment. And the recreation will be a far return to paradise. For the second coming of Christ, sin is going to be eradicated for good. In fact, I want you to again read that text in 2 Peter 3 sometime this week. And I said, if we had time, uh, we would look at the Tower of Babel. But we don't. Just know again, it's very clearly, they were, they were charged and encouraged to what? Be fruitful and and fill the earth and make a name for God, glorifying God and honoring God. Instead, what do they do? They come to make a name for, and they're coming centrally into one place. So God confuses the easily greatest cherished gift of human communication to uh, miscommunication. So here's the conclusion. We've got to do conclusion application that will be done. What we're seeing here in these crucial chapters of Genesis is what happens when sinful man rubs against a holy God. 
There is just consequence for sinners' actions. But there's also a patient and gracious response from a loving God. Friends, in Genesis 3.11, redemptive historical history has begun. God has set out on His course to redeem fallen humanity and the corrupted universe. He's out to restore the pristine environment and perfect peace, love, and fellowship. All that existed in the original creation. And to do this, He will deal with sin and conquer death through keeping the promise which He made the woman that one of her descendants will triumph over the enmity of Satan. That's where we're going as we continue through the Bible. So let's do the application very quick. There's just four of them, right? Uh, one, sin is horrible. Aren't we struck with that as we read this, right? Uh, we are stuck with the real horror of sin. We have all thought far too slightly of sin. We have not considered the complete and utter evilness of our rebellion against God. We dance around it by excusing it and calling it by names that soften the blow of it, but we need to call it what it is. Our sin is treason. Think about it. You have the all-powerful, all-creative, all-self-sufficient God on the one hand. He designed the whole system, everything all the way down to the level of atoms and quarks. And then you have His creatures who are completely dependent upon Him, made from dust, assigned with the task of imaging His moral perfection, beauty, and love, assigned with bringing His justice and rule to the world, created with the purpose of pointing to Him, but putting their hand up to Him and saying, no, thank you. I'm as good as you. I'll do it my way. I'll rule my life and the world around me how I please. Friends, do you realize when you get up in the morning, and as we talked about last Sunday, when you fail to, in every step of your life, inquire of the Lord, but when you decide to get up out of your bed, brush your teeth, eat breakfast, and plan your day without any consideration of God's rule over your life, you are saying, I am like God. I know good and evil. I'll feel this morning how I want to feel this morning. I'll respond to my spouse or kids or parents the way I want to respond to them. I'll think what I want to think about this church service tonight, and I am like God. I know it's good and evil, and, and, and God, man, who needs Him? I've got me. That's the reality. Well, we need to remember that we are referential creatures, and what I mean by that is we are never to be pointing to ourselves. We are not to be look-at-us creatures. We're made for another. We're made to display the glory of another. And every time we insist on our own autonomy, we're committing the same treachery and sedition that we read about today. I mean, even after the fall into sin, man still bears God's image. And so the problem is not that man no longer bears his image when he sins. The problem is that when man sins, he bears a perversion of God's image. He does not fill the earth with God's righteous glory. He mis misrepresents, dishonors, lies about, distorts the truth of God and who He is. Like a carnival mirror, its reflection is twisted and wrong. Think about what this means. If nothing is more important than God's glory, then nothing is more evil than trying to deny God the glory that is His. Therefore, nothing is more important than God vindicating His righteous glory by punishing sin and destroying those who miss. Barren. Second point of application, all these are very quick. Um, and that text in 2 Peter, it tells us, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? 
knowing God will hold us accountable for our actions, or knowing God, sorry, knowing God will hold us accountable for our actions should serve as a motivator toward holiness. That's by the way we've been given to church. That's why we as church members need to be constant about opening up our lives to each other, to be involved in each other's life, not to be busybodies or gossips, but in order to help each other fight the nemesis we all have within, which is sin. Thirdly, no matter how righteous a life we lead relative to some worldly standard, you and I will never on our own live up to God's standard of holiness. We're all sinners. That means our situation is desperate. Our best deeds are really dirty rags. We all stand in need of someone else's righteousness imputed to us. So application is this, put your whole entire confidence in Christ. Believe in Him, repent of your sins, and trust that His death and resurrection are sufficient to atone for your sins and give you eternal life. Let no other trust in truth. Throw the whole of yourself onto Christ. And finally, we need to follow Christ by hearing and obeying His Word which is why we're doing this time. You see, the, the fall originated in the same place that all sin originates, in ignorance of and confusion about the Word of God. So we need to be blood earnest about learning, internalizing, and memorizing the Word of God. And not just that, but again, taking the things that we've heard so that we can reproduce them to others that they may, might become disciples. Amen? Any thoughts and questions? I know that's a lot of stuff. Um, and that's only eight chapters. Any comments? Or, yes, Justin. Just for clarity, when we talk about typology, can you briefly explain when how this plays out? Like when you talked about David and Jesus. Sure, yeah, absolutely. What terms so, do you use and what does that mean? Yeah, so we often, we often, to me, one of the clearest examples would be Isaac, right? The sacrifice of Isaac. What do you see there in that picture? You see, we need a lamb for the sacrifice. And so God tells Abraham to go and sacrifice his only son, the son that he's awaited for the promise for so long. God tells him to do it, and Abraham believes God. I really believe that Abraham believes that God will provide the sacrifice as he tells Isaac on the road there. So look at this. God is showing Abraham a picture of Christ. And so David clearly is, or I'm sorry, Isaac clearly is a picture of, of what Christ will become. You were to read that story, and Israel was to read that story and look forward to that promise of Genesis 3.15. And, and I love it because really when you think about even the context of that story, Isaac's like a, he's like a 17-year-old kid. And how old is Abraham? But the scriptures tell us that Abraham bound Isaac and tied him up. Do you, do you think that if Abraham, uh, that Isaac was to fight his father Abraham, that Abraham would be able to contain him? So what does that tell us about Isaac? He's willing. And, and what does Abraham say? The Lord will provide a sacrifice. And then it, John 8, when, when Jesus says, Abraham has seen my glory, this is exactly what he's referring to. Uh, the Lord intervenes. He stops. He's showing Abraham what he's going to do. And then he provides a ram in the thicket to come and take the place of his only son because Isaac was not the Christ. Isaac was pointing forward to the Christ. And we see this everywhere. In fact, go and listen to our sermons in 2 Samuel. We do this every week about how David typifies, shows us an Old Testament picture pointing forward to what God is going to bring about in redemption and in Christ. Okay, So we see this every week, but that to me is one of the clearest examples. Does that make sense? Same thing with, with actually the ark being a type of Christ. 
The ark is the one that bears the punishment of the entire flood. And in the ark is, is only the, the only place where Noah and his family is safe, right? Picturing what Christ would do for those who are in Christ and are in the boat that is Christ, that we are protected from the wrath of God. All throughout the scriptures. Guys, read the Bible with that lens on. Because Jesus is everywhere. He absolutely is. That clear up? Okay. Any more questions? You know, it's sad when, um, when I uh, actually dress like a pastor one day out of the year and my wife comes up to me and says, are y'all doing like a dedication tonight or something? Or <laughs> doing a baptism on Wednesday night? What's going on? So, um, anyway. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you. Um, for the Old Testament, we thank you for the picture and promise of, Lord, the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent. We thank you that Jesus accomplished that. That, Lord, now we're in the place and time where we get to look back at the fulfillment of that promise. Uh, Father, we know that that's what took place. And we thank you that you made it clear in your word that all who are trusting and resting in the finished work of Christ have salvation indeed. Their sins have been paid for, and they have redemption. We love you, Lord Jesus. Apply these biblical truths to us and help us to reproduce into our family and friends and make disciples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you guys so much.